Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Just recently, I saw a um, a news feed about a uh, Canadian uh, school that had um, removed from the library all the uh, books that were published before two double o eight, and the the basis of this was that they wanted um, uh, students to. Uh, only read material that made them feel inclusive. Now, I thought, wow, this is a bit extreme. So I I had a look around on the um, internet and it was certainly reported on uh, CNN News and Sky News um, in Australia. So, um, But it it made me think about um, the increasing control that seems to be being implemented on, particularly on what on what young people learn. So, at the present time, of course, in you know state schools and and even many religious schools, the the student uh, or church based schools, the, the students aren't taught the overwhelming evidence that we have for creation and for a a creator God. And what um, makes this even more disturbing? in my view, is that the uh, just recently also the head of the armed services in Australia gave a talk about his increasing concern about um, the use of you know, artificial intelligence and, and other means to get out false information and, uh, you know, the ability now to have, uh, for example, a, a politician or a leader uh, making statements that they're actually not making. So in other words, making a, a film or a, you know, a, a video of making statements that they're not actually uh, making. And also um, the use, of course, of, of social media and, and, and so forth to change um, people's views and particularly influence young people's views. And we see this happening uh, at the moment, particularly in regard to um, uh, gender and the people that – and and young people having access to – you know the internet at uh, an early age on their on their phones and the social media aspects that um, uh, influencing you know young people to think oh what gender are you really well instead of just letting them be a child and grow up a, you know and enjoy being children and you know it doesn't really matter whether they play with boys or girls they're just you know playing it's and um, as I spoke about. Recently, on one of these programs, you know, the whole issue of adolescence involves um, cognitive and psychological uh, developments as as well, and so there seems to be this um, attempt to influence uh, people and uh, what they know. But what this boils down to is that the the difficulty in discerning what is true. And this is something that the head of Australia's armed forces pointed out, that it's going to be increasingly difficult for people to ascertain what is true, what are the, what are the facts, what is really happening. And I think this is something that is very alarming to me 
in that the uh, the push, uh, particularly uh, by atheists and so forth, to remove um, the evidence that we have for God, and hence these programs that well that you're listening to now, programs like this, where I'm looking at the over and want to discuss the overwhelming evidence that we have at the moment for a creator God, for a super intelligent mind that has created the amazing living systems, whether they be in plants, animals, fish, insects, bacteria. They're so complex uh, that it's absolutely impossible for these systems that are all coordinated, that work um, synchronistically um, to make the operations of and the life-giving functions of these organisms uh, to function smoothly um, is, uh, is amazing in its complexity and is obviously absolutely impossible to have, by random mutations, um, have, a, have occurred uh, so that all the required process is synchronised. And we also see the effect of disease and um, certain um, when, uh, you know, unexpected extremes occur in the environment and produce changes, uh, these damage the systems. Um, and so, again, this is powerful evidence that, you know, seeing these environmental factors are there uh, for a system to arise um, in these conditions and not be broken as well. The the evidence from so many aspects of looking at it points to this creator. And it's very concerning that this information is being, the information and the evidence for a supernatural creator is being kept uh, from young people. The other aspect, of course, is the, the Bible itself and the evidence we have from history, uh, from archaeology, from other records, and also the personal testimony of Christians down through you know, um, the last couple of thousand years. Um, and before that, the evidence from the prophets that were recorded in and the holy men that were uh, the evidence that was recorded in the, in the Bible there. We have this overwhelming evidence of testimony to the truthfulness of the the biblical account and the reality of um, the you know the supernatural world, and it's interesting that Paul you know points out that you know we are warring against supernatural forces, the forces of demons that are out to destroy God's people and and God's kingdom. And of course, many people reject this. You know, um, you know, standard you know, psychology textbooks and so forth would reject this. But the the evidence is there, and it's very, very important, in my view, that we uh, understand and preserve the evidence that we have for God. And hence, um, as I've uh, mentioned, um, one of the reasons for this program is to provide the the evidence from science for a supernatural creator that we can believe in and 
who loves us. The Bible describes a God who created us in his image so that we can have fellowship with him. And God has an amazing future plan for us. Now that sin and, and um, evil entered the world supernaturally in the, in the beginning, and God's plan to recreate um, this world and life on it, um, and a system that would um, last et- eternally. And, and, and this is amazing. And this is the hope that we have, that if we become stricken by disease and eventually you know, all of us will die, that we will be reunited with loved ones. It's not the end. God has a plan uh, for us. And it's so important that this message get out to young people because another issue just um, in the newspaper the other day was um, mental ill health among young people. Uh, is a growing concern for teachers. It's a number one priority listed, um, or number one problem, I should say, listed among young people at school was mental health. And I think we we can see young people are under enormous pressures and influence. There's you know, political pressures, there's environmental pressures associated, and uh, you know a whole lot of fear mongering in so many different areas uh, that is out there in the media on so many different topics. And the Bible message, of course, is a message of hope that young people are special, that God has a plan for them. And again, this is very concerning because we understand so many young people and people are are taking their own lives now because they don't see hope, but there is hope. Um, And this is the important message. And so to counter the growing push to remove God from our education system, from our political system, is one of the reasons that I'm giving these talks. Now... When the talk that I've uh, chosen today is centred on our respiratory control system or our breathing control system, and when we you know look at uh, the standard pictures of evolution, um, sort of um, different uh, very early forms of life evolving into fish and then fish evolving into uh, from you know. Um, uh, gill-type respiratory system into a lung-type respiratory system. We see this as, oh, this is just something that has evolved. But the amazing and huge amount of chemistry that is involved to make these changes and produce the specific compounds that enable our respiratory system to work as enormous, and they're extremely complex. And I want to just um, talk about this uh, and explain some of the complexity because, you know, often the charge is made, you know, uh, against, uh, you know, Dr. Ashton's a chemist. Uh, what would he know about biology? The thing is that biology is underpinned by chemical reactions and chemistry, chemical compounds. And so chemistry is fundamental. And the whole uh, claims of evolution are underpinned by supposed chemical reactions, which in actual fact don't happen. And this is, you know, one of the important points to really understand, you know, that a lot of the claims that, you know, particular compounds could form by random mutations and changes to the genetic code uh, are just not going to occur in in nature, in a natural environment. You know, scientists have enough difficulty making some of these reactions happen in the laboratory and some 
in some cases, reactions we actually at the present time can't replicate exactly in the laboratory, uh, under laboratory conditions. They require a living cell type environment to replicate. So when we come to breathing, the respiratory centre, of course, is located in uh, the medulla oblongata and the pons, which are parts of the brain right at the back of the um, uh, of the skull section there that are part of the brain stem, uh, where our brain actually joins the, the spinal cord there. And the respiratory centre is made up of three major respiratory groups of neurons. These are a sort of brain cells, and there's two types in the medulla and one in the pond. And um, in the medulla, they're um, the dorsal respiratory group and the ventral respiratory group. And in the pons and the pontine, they have the pontine respiratory group, uh, which includes two areas known as the uh, pneumotaxic centre and the uh, aphanistic uh, centre. And, of course, these the respiratory centre was very complex. is responsible for generating, maintaining the rhythm of respiration and also adjusting this in a balanced response to physiological changes, like whether we're running up hills or you know, we've suddenly been frightened and we want to get away from a snake um, or um, we want to relax, this sort of thing. And the respiratory centre receives input from a whole lot of um, sources. There are chemoreceptors. They they react to chemical uh, responses. Then there are mechanical receptors. And uh, then there's also the influence of the cerebral cortex um, and the hypothalamus, of course, which is the uh, system that regulates the rate and depth of breathing. And so... um, Input stimulated by, uh, again, different levels of oxygen, of carbon dioxide, of our uh, acidity of our blood, the, the pH level of our blood, um, and also hormonal, hormonal changes that occur as a result of stress um, and also anxiety. Um, and so uh, this input is, is, is rep, uh, regulated by the hypothalamus and it um, is also affected by signals from the cerebral cortex. Um, and this gives us our conscious control of respiration. So, for example, it might be an exercise class uh, and uh, the instructor says, right, I want you now to take a deep breath and, and hold it. And so we have this conscious override to a degree. But um, a few years ago, in uh, 2017, um, in the Journal of Physiological Sciences, uh, volume 67, number one, pages uh, 45 to 62, there was an interesting uh, paper published called The Respiratory Control Mechanisms in the Brainstem and Spinal Cord, um, Integrative Views of the Neuroanatomy and Neurophysiology. And um, this was a, a paper by, um, from memory, researchers from Cornell University in the US. And it's in, in, interesting when you read the abstract, it said the respiratory activities are produced by the medullary uh, respiratory rhythm generators and are modulated from various sites in the lower brainstem, which I've just said, which are then output as motor activities through the premotor efferent networks in the brainstem and spinal cord. 
But this is the important bit. Over the past few decades, new knowledge has been accumulated on the anatomical and physiological mechanisms underlying the generation and regulation of respiratory rhythm. And so what they're saying there is that these systems are so complex, so interconnected and so integrated that scientists are still working out how the system works. And it goes on, in this review, we focus on recent findings and attempt to elucidate the anatomical and functional mechanisms underlying respiratory control in the lower brain stem and spinal cord. So what I'm saying here, here we've got a top journal reporting a major review that was published in 2017, and they're saying an attempt to elucidate or understand the function of the mechanisms underlying the respiratory control system. And we, we just have these systems just are taught to our students that they evolved. They evolved by random, blind mutations. But we don't see this continuing to happen. We see there's systems that are working that are working really well. And, uh, and I think this is one of the uh, aspects that we need to remember. When we glibly talk about something evolving into something else and lungs of, you know, fish and lungs evolve from gills and all this sort of thing and people refer to the Queensland lungfish and all these sort of things and they paint this really, really simple picture. They don't realise the extremely complex chemistry that's involved, the very complex, not only physical structures and neuron structures that are extremely complex and have really complex parts, but also the particular chemicals that carry some of these signals, that stimulate these signals. These chemicals also have to be synthesised in the cell, in the living organism, by a whole series of chemical reactions. You just don't produce the chemical bang, you know, there it is. You've got a set of chain reactions to produce a whole lot of intermediates to end up with these particular chemicals that are involved in regulation. And this is all controlled by a code, by the genetic code that is in the DNA. And the this code, as you know, I've, I've pointed out when it talks about you know uh, a particular hormone, it, it's a it's a code, um, just like the word hormone, H-O-R-M-O-N-E, right? That's a code involving particular. It looks nothing like a hormone chemical, right? But it's interpreted by my brain, and again the. Uh, and as you listen, and my brain then can can read that word, I can say that word out now because of the connections, and you can hear that word, and if you've learnt what a hormone is, you can picture what I'm talking about. But to code, it's it doesn't look like. So the code requires in intelligence, and the words are uh, for, you know, different uh, things are different in different languages. You know, an apple is apple in English, palm in France, and so forth. And as I mentioned, you know, we talk about fish, F-I-S-H, but in Latvian it would be zivis, Z-I-V-I-S. So again, these are codes, and you've got to know the, the language. And and, of course, I've talked previously about our code reader. And so this is one of the things, the complexity of these changes that we glibly say evolve, something evolved into something, are so complex, it's absolutely impossible for these coordinated, synchronised changes to occur that work 
by random chemical reactions. But it's interesting, just getting back to the amazing breathing um, system that we have, one way in which breathing is controlled is through feedback by chemoreceptors. There are two kinds of respiratory chemoreceptors. There's the arterial ones, uh, which monitor and respond to changes in the partial pressure of oxygen and carbon dioxide in in the blood in our arteries. And there are also central chemoreceptors in the brain that respond to changes in the partial pressure of carbon dioxide in their immediate environment in our brain. And so the ventilation levels behave as if they were regulated to maintain a constant level of carbon dioxide partial pressure and to ensure adequate oxygen levels in the arterial blood, in the blood in our arteries. And so increased activity in these chemoreceptors... uh, caused by an increase in the partial pressure of carbon dioxide. In other words, if we're not um, if we're producing a lot of waste products and the carbon dioxide builds up, that um, increase or changes both the rate and depth of breathing, which restores the partial pressure of oxygen and carbon dioxide to their normal levels. So as that level of carbon dioxide goes up, we're then stimulated to bring in uh, more oxygen and, and obviously to expel that carbon dioxide as well. On the other hand, too much ventilation depresses the partial pressure of carbon dioxide and that leads to a reduction in chemoreceptor activity and the, um, the re- reduction of ventilation. So we have these amazing uh, chemoreceptors that are there so again, we can when we go to very high altitudes, we can um, uh, have problems because the air is very thin there. Um, and uh, so, for example, you know, people going to uh, getting ready to climb very high mountains and this sort of thing need to adjust to the lower. Um, uh, density um, or lower concentration of oxygen at those levels. Um, And this situation stimulates the uh, carotid and aortic bodies, uh, which are the principal arterial chemoreceptors. And uh, the carotid bodies, uh, they're small organs located in the neck, um, where two uh, common uh, carotid arteries actually meet. This organ is an organ set up to respond to changes in the partial pressure of oxygen in the artery blood flowing through it um, rather than the oxygen content of the blood, So, which is the amount of oxygen chemically combined to haemoglobin. So we need to understand, again, with the blood, there, there's two ways. There's actually a small amount of oxygen that is carried as oxygen in the blood, and of course, it's this that uh, this uh, level of air, for example, that can cause the the bends in divers if they come up too quickly from very high pressures. But also, there's um, the oxygen that is actually carried by the blood bound to hemoglobin, and this is the main amount of oxygen that is carried, and so. Um, it's interesting that the sensory nerve um, from the carotid body, um, oh, the carotid body, increases its firing rate uh, hyperbolically, so it's quite rapidly, as the partial pressure of oxygen falls. 
Um, and so what we see is there's these amazing control mechanisms and there's a lot more that we could uh, talk about, all the different types of uh, cells that are involved in these detectors that measure the different types of uh, oxygen and the partial pressure and, and so forth. But uh, we still really haven't touched on the... Um, you know, some of the other chemoreceptors, there are uh, chemoreceptors, the central chemoreceptors, for example, for carbon dioxide that involves and responds uh, to that. Um, and um, these, uh, some of these um, uh, bodies that affect our breathing also help regulate blood pressure. Um, but it's interesting, too, then the whole thing relies on our lungs to bring the air in and out. And so this energy expended on breathing um, is moves the lung and it's, uh, it normally amounts to about 1% of our basal energy is required, uh, but it rises during exercise and sometimes during um, uh, illness. And this pump of our lungs uh, is capable of increasing its output 25 times from a normal resting level of about 6 litres of air per minute to up to 150 litres per minute in, um, in adults. Of course, this gas that we, uh, the gases that we breathe in, oxygen, carbon dioxide, eventually have to enter the blood. And so there's this respiratory exchange between the air and the surfaces of the lungs. And um, this human lung provides an immense internal surface that facilitates this gas exchange. The area in adult human is in the order of 50 to 100 square metres in area. It's huge. And, uh, of course, the gas exchange uh, is between the uh, alveoli and the capillaries, and this is enhanced by a very thin uh, nature of a membrane um, that's only about 0.5 micron or a hundredth the diameter of a human hair in, um, in thickness. And it's interesting that to stop these air spaces in our lungs, which are covered with this fluid, um, from sticking together, uh, there's a very special um, phospholipid surfactant that is produced and is contained there that reduces surface tension and keeps the walls separated. So here again we see these amazing design features involving the chemical systems. But not only that, haemoglobin binds not only to oxygen but to other substances such as hydrogen ions which uh, uh, relate to the pH of the blood and consequently foods that affect our blood pH can affect our ability to uh, carry oxygen. Uh, so the higher the pH or the lower the hydrogen ions, the more oxygen we can carry. And that's why alkaline foods, what we call the alkaline foods, foods that help the blood become more alkaline, can increase our physical fitness and exercise capability. And that's again why the original plant-based diet in the Bible um, is so ideal for health. The respiratory system is an absolutely amazing system, but the control system is even more amazing in its complexity and powerful evidence 
for a creator designer. You've been listening to Faith and Science and remember if you want to re-listen to these um, programs just Google 3abnaustralia.org.au uh, click on the radio button and um, the uh, and then the different programs will uh, come up such as Faith and Science. I'm Dr John Ashton. Have a great day. been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.